Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Africa Studies. I'm Nicholas Walton. It's June 2014 and in this podcast we're turning our attention to a terrific journalist's account of that rarest of events, the redrawing of borders and the formation of a brand new country. Joining me from down the line over in Britain is James Copnell, the author of A Poisonous Thorn in Our Hearts, Sudan and South Sudan's Bitter and Incomplete Divorce. So hello James. Hello, thanks very much for having me. Right, well, let's get straight down to business because there's plenty to talk about, James. Uh, before looking at the book itself, let's hear a little bit more about about you, how you came to be in Sudan, uh, and how you came to write the book. I mean, obviously, a fairly obvious subject if you're there, but tell us all about it. Yeah, well, I was a BBC uh, foreign correspondent for about a decade, um, and my uh, initial area of interest, uh, my studies too, was in Francophone Africa. So I lived in Senegal, and then I was the BBC correspondent in Ivory Coast, and and then in Morocco. But in 2009, I moved to Sudan to be the BBC correspondent there. And at the time, Sudan was Africa's biggest country, and people will obviously have heard about the very long-running north-south civil wars and the uh, and the conflict in Darfur too. And I lived in Sudan in a really fascinating period from. 2009 to late 2012 and in that period there were the first multi-party elections for more than two decades very flawed elections but still a historic moment there was a referendum in which southern Sudanese decided to become an independent country that that was what they wanted after decades of struggling with the government in Khartoum then there was the separation uh, the split where South Sudan became the world's newest country and that was in July 2011. And then I decided to write a book about what happened next, what happened then with uh, the creation of a new country. And it was a pretty extraordinary period, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit more detail later. But, you know, the, the relationship between the two Sudans, what are now the two Sudans, was an extremely bad one. And there were great challenges for the peoples of both countries. And that seemed to me an extremely interesting and important thing to, to write about. And living in Sudan, as I did, and traveling very regularly to South Sudan um, for, for my job, gave me a kind of access that actually I felt not that many people had, um, because increasingly people study or report on one Sudan, but not the other. Uh, and I was lucky enough to go back and forth between the two and see some of the links between the two countries and um, how they still depended on each other despite the split. And that was something I thought it was important to write about. Can, can I just ask a question that was uh, that, that I'm interested in from my own background as a journalist and, and BBC foreign correspondent as well is um, how rare a beast in Khartoum were you? Um, did everyone else cover the all of the other journalists, whether for, for, for news wires, newspapers, broadcasters? Did they tend to cover things from down in, uh, in Nairobi, for instance, and just fly in? Or were there other people like you sat in Khartoum trying to cover everything from there? 
Well, essentially, there's there's a small foreign press corps in Khartoum, um, but really pretty small. Um, so the Arabic language TV channels had quite a few reporters, um, but in general, they were Sudanese who were under certain restrictions, really, in terms of what they were able to do, either for sort of family reasons or sort of pr- pressure from the authorities, uh, which we face too, as well as, as, as non-Sudanese, but probably more so on the Sudanese. Uh, and then there were a couple of news agency, three or four news agency journalists uh, and one or two others, but really um, certainly Western members of the press corps, we were maybe five or six in Khartoum and probably a similar number in, in South Sudan. Sudan has lots of restrictions on the press which weren't immediately present in, in South Sudan. And so lots of particularly youngish freelancers thought it would be a great story to cover the, the creation of this new country and they would base themselves in Juba for a bit, not often for very long, maybe a year or two years because it's a quite difficult, uh, exhausting place to be based. But they would uh, cover the story from Juba. But if you were in South Sudan, it was very difficult to get a visa to cover Sudan. So the people who were in South Sudan generally didn't go north of the border. And actually quite a few of the reporters in Sudan didn't, didn't go south into the new country uh, either. Um, and then, of course, you did have uh, people who came from Nairobi or Cairo um, or further afield to, to cover the stories at sort of moments of great dramatic news value. But although it's very easy to get into South Sudan, getting a, a journalist visa for Sudan is particularly difficult. So quite often um, I'd be one of really a very small handful of foreign journalists covering a big Sudanese story. Okay. Um, The country of Sudan, it probably makes a lot of sense to actually start talking about what Sudan was and what it was like. Um, You've mentioned it was the biggest country in Africa. It's phenomenally big. Uh, You can fly over large large swathes of it and there's absolutely nothing beneath you. Um, Can you take us through a bit of that? I mean, especially because uh, the conflicts, for instance, between the North and the South have been going on pretty much since the era of independence. Yes, I mean, even before. um, So Sudan was always a sort of slightly odd creation, kind of put together in a uh, strange way by the British and the Egyptians and the Ottomans, it wasn't a coherent country before the colonial period. And so in what's now South Sudan, people's experiences of Sudan are conditioned by decades of what they saw as exploitation from Khartoum, whether that was at the time when the country was sort of created and ruled by the Ottoman Empire. It's a period known as the Turkia or, or the sort of British-Egyptian colonial period, which went from 1898 to independence, Sudan's independence in 1956, or at the time of the United Sudan um, from 1956 until when South Sudan split away in, in 2011. And so these were areas with no common uh, culture, no common history, with huge... Uh, differences, whether that's religious, the north, what is now Sudan being uh, largely Muslim, um, and the south, now uh, there are Muslims, but also many more followers of traditional religions and Christianity. So religious differences, ethnic differences, and identity has been a huge part of the struggles in Sudan, identity politics, in that successive governments in Khartoum have favoured a 
Arabizing and Islamizing policy, the idea that if everyone becomes a Muslim and looks to the Arab world, um, this would increase the harmony of the nation. Well, in fact, it hasn't worked because many people in Sudan and what is now South Sudan see themselves as African rather than Arab. And so this conflict about what sort of nation the Sudanese nation was uh, has always been a, a huge factor political differences and lack of development and lack of political power for the outlying regions of uh, this vast country created great uh, tensions historically. So even from just before Sudan's own independence in 1956, there were clashes in South Sudan. And so you had ultimately two very, very long uh, north-south civil wars um, one from 1955 to 1972, and then one from 1983 to 2005. So by the time South Sudan became independent, the Southern Sudanese had fought essentially for four decades out of the previous five decades, an extraordinary period of time against Khartoum, not always to split away, but at least to try and reform the country. And when it became clear that wasn't possible, South Sudan split away. But those differences and similarities between Sudan and South Sudan continued after the split and caused many of the problems we're still seeing today. But it's not as simple as just the north against the south. You mentioned Darfur earlier, um, and it, it, it's been a difficult country to be able to hold together or to be able to treat in, a, in any kind of simplistic way, which is why, as you say, there's been this, this um, the cartoon government has been trying to foster this sense of Sudan as something that, that looks towards the Arab world and the Muslim world. Uh, where does Darfur sit in, uh, in, in all of this and this feeling that separatism needs to be dealt with in the south? Well, Darfur is to the west uh, mm-hmm. of, of Sudan, um, and it's uh, indisputably Muslim. Almost everybody there, if not everyone, is Muslim. So some of the religious tensions that you saw in the sort of north-south issues uh, didn't really come up in Darfur. But there are issues of race and uh, identity in Darfur, particularly expressed through um, Arab and African identities. And, and those you really need to put in uh, inverted commas, really. Those are terms that are used widely within Sudan, within Darfur. People describe themselves as African or describe themselves as Arab. Uh, in many cases, people are Afro-Arab. They have African and Arab origins. And, of course, people will say rightly, too, that an Arabic identity is an African identity, too, in, in, in the northern part of, of Africa. But in terms of uh, a political identity created or not, an African identity or an Arab identity were are real factors. And uh, given the style of government uh, chosen by Khartoum, often an Arab identity received preferential treatment. You were closer to the centre of power uh, if you had an Arab identity rather than an African one. And so within Darfur, the, the conflict has often uh, played out through tensions between Arab groups and African groups, sometimes over diminishing resources, sometimes over local conflicts, sometimes over grievances with the political capital. But where this all fits into the bigger picture is that there has been a long-standing pattern going back to the Ottoman times and the British-Egyptian times and perpetuated by generations of rulers of the independent Sudan of the dominance of the centre and politically connected people around the capital in Khartoum. People talk about the three tribes, three ethnic groups from 
the Nile Valley to the north of Khartoum, who have dominated the political and economic uh, resources of the country. And so people in the uh, outlying regions, whether that's southern Sudan, which then split away, or whether that's Darfur or the east, have felt marginalized and neglected, locked out of the real decision-making process, their areas haven't seen much development, Uh, they haven't received the attention they deserve from the state. And sometimes that was because of um, a sense of racial or religious superiority coming from the centre, sometimes not. And, you know, it's worth saying, too, that Sudan was and is an extremely difficult country to govern. It's inhospitable terrain in the most part, an extremely large place with very few roads. It's very difficult to develop the outlying areas of the country. But certainly different parts of Sudan, whether it's South Sudan, whether it's the east, whether it's South Kordofan and Blue Nile, uh, or whether it's Darfur, people have taken up arms against the state because of this pattern of marginalization uh, that they have suffered through over decades. And all of this points to obviously a much more complicated mosaic than that, sim- than that simple idea of it just being an Arab Muslim North and black Christian South. And I was wondering when I was reading it whether the main most striking thing about the structure where you build the book around the experiences of a scattering of of different people such as a businessman and a a tea seller in the north and a a singer and a cattle herder and various other people in the south was that your answer to trying to show just how many different facets there were to the country and how much more complicated it was than just this this kind of simple idea that people have got embedded in their head yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was two things, really. The first, as you say, was it's an incredibly complex uh, country in terms of its peoples, um, dozens of ethnic groups, dozens of languages, identity politics, as you know, we've been saying, is incredibly important, but also nuanced and complex. And this rather simplistic shorthand of Arab Muslim North and Black Christian South doesn't actually stand up to all that much scrutiny. It's much more complicated than that. And I did want to show that. Uh, And so by using uh, ordinary people, as it were, from different situations, I I hope to tease out certain aspects of that. And the other reason I chose to do it is that I I think that in a lot of books um, about the Sudans, um, but also uh, African topics in general, and and maybe further afield, but that's my area of interest and, and expertise, you you tend to get Westerners write two different types of books. One is the sort of academic, uh, very valuable study of politics, say, of a country, Uh, but you don't get much sense of the people and how their lives are affected by the big decisions taken in the capital, or or not sometimes, um, because sometimes people live outside the state. So books are impressive in their grasp of political theory, but no real sense of who the people are they're talking about. And then the second type of book that is often written is a tends to feature the Western writer almost as the hero of his or her own story, the explorer who heads up the Congo River and describes the scene. And uh, people only make a fleeting, the local people only make a fleeting appearance in that sort of uh, book. And it's more about... Uh, the Western narrator's thoughts and feelings and impressions. And I wanted to avoid that and as much as possible put uh, people from both Sudan and South Sudan at at the centre of the narrative or, or of the book. 
Okay, and uh, the people that you chose, I, I mentioned uh, a few of them, the businessmen, the tea seller, there were cattle herders on both sides of the, of, the, of, of the border. Who are the ones that, that, that you enjoyed talking to the most? Well, I think I'd, I learned something from all of them and, and enjoyed talking to them a lot. And, and they were chosen to respect different types of person, if type is is not too derogatory a word. Uh, so a cartoon businessman, for example, Mustafa Hojali, this is someone who is successful, who's done well with his life, who uh, is a nice person, who thinks a lot about his country and how it can be better, uh, but has unashamedly and rightly succeeded in what he did. And he maybe had an advantage from his background, as is the case in Sudan and other places, uh, but he, he, he has made a success of his life. And that's something that maybe you don't see that often. I enjoyed a lot talking to Gatgong Jech, who's a cow herder in a very remote place in Unity State in South Sudan. Uh, it was all through an interpreter. He really only speaks Nur, which is his mother tongue, not much English or, or Arabic. And in many ways, his life... Uh, it had been changed by the fact that South Sudan was independent and he was able to send his children to school. And his great regret was not being able to go to school himself. But his children were still being brought up herding cows in the way that he had 40 or 50 years previously. So there was a certain sort of continuity there. But he was, I think, tickled by my interest in his life and his customs and his hopes for his children and was quite expansive about what all that meant to him. And then one of the tragedies of this period of uh, South Sudan's history and Sudan's too is that uh, conflict is, you know, really ever-present in some parts of the country. So Gatagong Jech, this, this uh, cow herder, his area is a place called Lair, and in the recent fighting in South Sudan, that area has been uh, devastated by the conflicts. There's almost nothing left of the small town uh, buildings all burnt down and ransacked and looted. And I have no idea what has happened to him. Um, many people fled into the bush taking their cows if they could, but many people died as well. So one of the great tragedies for me is simply not knowing what, what happened to this person who I found so captivating uh, when I was interviewing him for the book. Mm. Could, uh, just because I found that the, the cattle herding uh, element so interesting and because it, it 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 really explains how difficult it is to pin down what uh, what Sudanese uh, society and and its economy is the uh, especially the further south you go you end up with a lot of uh, people from pastoral herding cultures um, can you explain uh, a little bit more about that and, and and explain just how how much of Sudan and South Sudan owes its its very makeup to people whose way of life is is this very difficult uh, thing to understand. Yeah. Well, so what happens is in Sudan, in in uh, the northern area of Sudan, actually camels are their uh, animal of choice because it's largely desert. And then the further south in Sudan you go, the nearer you get to the border with South Sudan. Uh, the more people are likely to depend on cows. And actually those Sudanese people, talking about, for example, the Misereer or the Rizagat, every year they look for the best grazing and pasture, and that changes sort of seasonally, but it requires them to travel into what is now South Sudan, crossing what is now an international border with their cows. 
to for that seasonal grazing. Um, so that's something that requires a great deal of negotiation and, of course, made more difficult now that the two countries are two countries and not just one. And there are clashes every year and so on and uh, big meetings to work out how this seasonal migration should take place. But it's a huge issue. This, these are people's livelihoods. They have cows and not much else. So, for example, uh, one of the people uh, I write about in the book is called Ablaziz Hussein, and he's half from the Misereya, the Sudanese group, and half from the Dinka, which is a South Sudanese group. And every year he goes down into South Sudan with his cows. But he feels that, really, he's been torn apart a little bit like his country because do his loyalties live in Sudan, lie with Sudan or do they live in South Sudan? So that's one of the dilemmas of the people in the border. And from a South Sudanese perspective, the north of their country is really cow herding uh, country and cows are extremely important like Gatvong Jedge, that newer cow herd I was just talking about earlier the further south you go the more it's likely to be uh, sedentary farmers but pastoralists in the north um, and the country's two biggest ethnic groups the Dinka and the Nua are both cow herders and cows have an extremely important role in society so uh, very often people will have relatively large herds of cows or just a few cows, but they need those cows to marry. So a young man might need as many as 50 cows, which can be a really large amount of money uh, as a dowry to get married. And how, ma- how many might he have at that point himself oh, personally? He might only have one or two or a few, okay. and so then he will require his relatives to help him out. Uh, to give him cows or what also happens is you get in many states in South Sudan cattle raiding and revenge cattle raiding so a group of young men who want to get married who want to become full adult members of the community will head off to a rival group and they will take their cows often killing the cow guards and other people and then the second group will need to take revenge because those young men can't cope without their cows so they will go back uh, and this sort of revenge cattle raiding will escalate. And in Jongle State, in the east of the country, the northeast of South Sudan, every year hundreds or even thousands of people are killed in these revenge uh, cattle raids. It's one of the huge challenges South Sudan faces. And cows are so important that even if people are really, really hungry, they don't want to sell their cow um, because it's a sort of prestige, it's a sort of another sort of economy in some cases people aren't really part of the cash economy so you can live in a fairly poor hut but if you've got 50 or 60 cows you're a rich man and politicians and generals and music stars from that part of the world will uh, own huge vast herds of cows because that's one of the key things within that culture and generations of foreign advisors have hoped to find a way to get the Sudanese and the South Sudanese to use their cows in what they see as a more profitable way, use it as collateral or sell it if necessary. Uh, but it simply hasn't happened for reasons, I think, that those cows have a important symbolic role within mm. society. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Uh, right, let's get back on to the, the, the split between, well, the South Sudan actually 
um, appearing in the first place. Uh, obviously, if we go back into uh, history, back to colonial times, uh, it's it's pretty well-recognized fact that uh, borders were drawn in strange places, not necessarily the most sensible places. If you look at the uh, geography or the or the ethnic makeup or, or other ways that you can divide society, um, and yet there's been a kind of sacrosanct quality to those boards uh, to those borders, no matter how inconvenient. Uh, what is what sets the Sudanese case apart is that something actually was done about it. Uh, you mentioned that there are two large periods of conflict going back to 1955. You had the peace being drawn up um, you know, just around 10 years ago from now, or, or slightly mm. slightly less, uh, f- 2005, I think. Um, and then yeah. uh, there was a referendum uh, in which the overwhelming population uh, uh, of the uh, proportion of the people living in the south of the of the country said, yes, we would like to have independence. And lo and behold, it happened. Um, mm. We can talk about how, whether it's succeeded or what its prospects are later on. But it is striking that all of this happened in a continent where normally these are exactly the type of things that are pushed under the carpet in the name of things like stability or whatever. Why did this all happen in Sudan when it's not being allowed to happen in other places? It's a very good question, yeah. Um, I think there is a, a fairly obvious and public reticence of African leaders to countenance the idea of uh, countries splitting up um, because in many cases uh, fears that similar things could happen in their own backyard. Uh, and so, for example, I was the BBC correspondent in Ivory Coast and at one point the rebels... Uh, were in control of the north of the country. There was a de facto split, but there was never a serious movement for uh, the north of Ivory Coast to split away. Now, in part, that was because internationally it it wouldn't have been recognised. And in part, it was because, despite the many differences between northern and southern Ivorians, they all saw themselves as Ivorians, as Ivorian citizens. And the differences in what was Sudan which is simply too great, I think. So for the southern Sudanese, their experience of the north came with slave raiding and uh, economic exploitation, largely for gold in the 19th century under the Ottomans, um, a, a lack of development in, in the 20th century, um, these you know, almost semi-permanent conflicts with Khartoum, these vast sort of cultural differences uh, with the North. And so I think there was a feeling that we've had two decades-long civil wars in the relatively short period that Sudan has been an independent state. And it's quite clear that the southern Sudanese are going to keep on fighting And therefore, there was a growing recognition that if the southern Sudanese wanted their freedom, they should be given it. And I think the role of the international community is important in this, too, in that although they didn't initially get Western support uh, during the years of their struggle with Khartoum, the southern Sudanese came to receive that Western support, particularly when they all but abandoned uh, sort of communist ideas or a very left-wing uh, framework for their their struggle was framed in. And so uh, influential countries, in particular America, uh, made it clear that they would accept the idea of South Sudan becoming independent. 
I think probably in terms of American policy, it was seen as a bulwark against the uh, Islamist state of Sudan and constraining its influence by allowing South Sudan mm. to split away. So you had this context of many, many Southern Sudanese wanting to be independent. Sudanese tiredness at the long-running wars that were really destroying the country and an international context in which it was more possible than it would be uh, in other situations. You mentioned Western countries. What about the neighbours? Was there a degree where they were torn by the torn between the continuing instability within Sudan, thanks to all of the wars, or the prospect that uh, once you start dividing countries up, that's something that uh, obviously might uh, start creeping across other parts of the continent as well. Yes, I think they absolutely were. And, you know, there is that example within the region itself of Eritrea uh, seceding and then the very, very difficult relationship between Eritrea and Ethiopia and Mm. conflict on the borders and Eritrea really not being a very happy place right now with many many difficulties it clearly didn't resolve all of Eritrea's problems by coming independent so I think certainly there was that concern Um, but the peace deal that ended the war and laid the grounds for South Sudan's independence came really um, through yes western pressure in particular the US, Norway and Britain but also through regional mediation Mm -hmm. uh, regional body called IGAD was involved in the mediation so that the neighboring countries knew what they were getting into now it's probably important to to, to mention here that the southern Sudanese leader was a man called John Garang yes and he unlike many of his compatriots did not want South Sudan to become an independent country he wanted to reform Sudan he talked about a new Sudan Sudan which would be uh, fair to all its peoples where power and wealth and resources and development would be shared out equally in all the different regions that was his vision and he was the one who signed the peace deal Mm -hmm. but three weeks after he became vice president of sudan he died in a a a helicopter crash and i think with him the idea of a reformed sudan featuring south sudan died and then from that point on it became inevitable that south sudan would split away and salvador was Sorry, I was just so, going to say, and Salva Kiir was, obvious, uh, was always somebody who saw independence as the only way forward. Yes, exactly. So he was John Garang's deputy. He became then the vice president of Sudan and the, the president of the then semi-autonomous South Sudan, and he's now South Sudan's uh, first president. And yes, once he took over, it was clear that uh, secession would be the option chosen by the South Sudanese. Uh, but I suppose that the international bodies that backed the peace deal, which included the referendum on South Sudan's future, they might well have thought that with John Garang as the leader, uh, it might well be possible that the Southern Sudanese would vote to stay part of uh, Sudan. But as I said, once he died, that really became uh, very, very unlikely indeed. And as it was, 99% of the Southern Sudanese who voted chose independence. Uh, now, I know that you weren't around uh, at the time of uh, John Garang, but uh, do you think that there was anything in his vision of a, of a reformed Sudan, or do, do you honestly think that that deep down was impractical uh, and Khartoum was not the type of place that they would be able to get the deal over the medium and long term that, uh, that John Garang said was possible? Well, actually, the deal that the um, 
2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement gave the Southern Sudanese, put them in a relatively strong position because they had a semi-autonomous southern region, which they basically governed themselves with their own military forces in control there. It gave them a large say in the national government of the entire country, and it gave them 50% control of the oil reserves pumped from uh, their territory. So the Garang vision was we'll have almost entire control of our area, and then we'll have a big say in this much bigger country, Africa's biggest country, Mm -hmm. and we'll be able to change things. But actually, his party, the SPLM, and particularly after his death, didn't really do much in national government. They weren't able to end the war in Darfur. They weren't that involved. Essentially, everything moved towards the referendum and southern Sudan splitting away. There is a famous uh, phrase about the regime in Khartoum, which I think Garang used, which it was uh, too deformed to be reformed. (laughs) And I think there is a certain truth in that, the fact that not just the current government under Omar al-Bashir, who's been around for a quarter of a century, but succession of governments in Khartoum have operated the same system where the centre receives all the development, all the power, and the outlying areas are exploited and repressed uh, at times very, very brutally. Uh, And I think it's asking a huge amount for anybody, even John Garang, to have changed so enduring a system. And after all, we don't know what that counterexample would have been, but we do know how things have been progressing under independence. What was the kind of vision that the South Sudanese had, either when they were voting in their referendum by this enormous margin, or when they were actually running the new flag up the flagpole? What what was their vision of of what this country, you know, this phenomenally poor, difficult to govern, poor in infrastructure country with oil reserves and the, all of these links to this uh, massive uh, Khartoum-based uh, country uh, to the north. What, what did they think it could be? Well, in many ways, uh, South Sudan was founded on very, very admirable principles. You know, if you read the constitution of the governing party, the SPLM, it's about, you know, an end to racism and decentralization so that every region shares in the benefits of the the dividends of peace and and, uh, and independence in this case uh, and non-sexism and uh, all these very fine things. Um, but it, it was also a vision built out of a rejection of the cartoon system and all the problems that had created. And so an idea of South Sudanese identity was actually one couched in a rejection of the north and a rejection of Sudan and the problems Khartoum had created. But it didn't mean that there was much internal unity within southern Sudanese society or within the political elite. So in South Sudan now, you have more than 60 ethnic groups. uh, You have ethnic tensions between some of those groups, these deadly cattle raids and inter-ethnic clashes, thousands dying because of that. Uh, You have now a civil war in South Sudan, which increasingly has taken on an ethnic uh, aspect um, between the country's two biggest groups, the Dinka and the Nua. The people who took South Sudan to independence were almost exclusively rebel leaders, people who'd spent most of their lives in the bush fighting. And there was a sense of entitlement. 
So the South Sudanese writer Victor Lugala uses the refrain, where were you when we were fighting? If you weren't one of those generals or commanders in the bush, why should you have any say in the new country? That was Mm. the uh, dominant sense among the elite. Huge problems of corruption too. Um, So the president, Salva Kiir, wrote out a letter to 75 former and current officials accusing them of stealing $4 billion, which is about a third of the money the country had received from oil at that point, by one estimation. Uh, And critically, um, there was what the SPLM's own Luca Bion called the liberation curse. And what that means is the qualities you need to lead a liberation struggle to be a rebel leader are actually very different from the qualities you need to run a democratic, inclusive country. And so there were huge problems of leadership in the first couple of years after Mm -hmm. independence in the sense that despite the hugely high, maybe overinflated expectations of the Southern Sudanese on independence, uh, actually very little changed in people's day-to-day lives. The political elite concentrated power and money in Juba, just as the Sudanese had done in Khartoum, and the people, the poor people living out in uh, the underdeveloped villages received little or no benefits from independence. And then there were these tensions within the governing party um, that essentially eventually led to uh, this new conflict in South Sudan that has been in the headlines for the last six months. Yeah, it's astonishing how many of the the big issues facing Africa at the minute, all the way through to liberation party, liberation movements, and how they're able to uh, resurrect themselves and reinvent themselves in government. They're all present in this. Um, we, we're running out of time a little bit, so I just wanted to gloss over a couple of big issues, and, and that is... Uh, things like the the fact that oil plays a large part in this, and you know, if again, if we're to kind of draw a very simple cartoon version of Sudan, you can say that a lot of the pipelines lay in the north, lie in the north, and a lot of the production itself and getting it out of the ground lies in the south. And this all fits in with your overall thesis, uh, or at least part of it, uh, and that is that ultimately. Although there's now a border between these two parts, uh, they really need to find a way to work together if they're going to have success in in uh, in the uh, in the modern world. Um, so, can you just sort of draw together some of the strings and explain what your final kind of concluding argument is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. The, the arguments for dependence, um, mutual dependence, I think, are extremely strong. So you have, as you say, most of the oil in South Sudan, but it's the only way the southern Sudanese can get it to market is through Sudan, through the pipelines and export terminals and the refineries which are in Sudan. You've got the White Nile River that goes from South Sudan up into Sudan and all the agriculture that comes with that uh, mighty river in some places where otherwise agriculture would be pretty difficult. You've got the uh, dependence of the people in the border areas they call it the Tamazuj or intermingling areas in, in the border. Something like 13 million people live in the states either side of that uh, still undefined borderline. Um, and trade between those two is absolutely vital. As you could see when the Sudanese closed the border and then prices in South Sudan rose dramatically and people went hungry. And the fact that the political elites in the period after separation in both Juba and Khartoum carried out a sort of 
proxy war against each other by sponsoring rebel groups in the other country that cause huge amounts of devastation in both Sudan and South Sudan. And there's an economic aggression too. South Sudanese shut down their own pipelines, stopped their oil industry, which is 98% of government revenue. Just astonishing that they Mm. took the decision to shut it down voluntarily because there was no agreement over how much they should pay Sudan in oil transportation fees. And so uh, the Sudanese started taking or stealing that oil. Uh, And that had a devastating impact on the Sudanese economy because it was relying on these transportation fees and an even greater impact on the South Sudanese economy. So you have these people who are dependent on each other economically and can make each other's life much, much harder through conflict. And you have personal ties too. So in the book, I talked to a man called Garang Thomas Dell, and he's a southern Sudanese, and he fell in love with a Sudanese woman. For 10 years, he tried to persuade her family to allow him to marry her because he was South Sudanese, and they didn't want to. And eventually they said yes, and they had two children, very, very happy. And then separation came, and he lives in South Sudan, and his wife and two children live in Sudan, and they're now separated by this border, mm-hmm. and he needs a, a visa to go and visit his own family. So those kind of ties in terms of security and the economy and personal ties too have continued since separation. And if Sudan and South Sudan can live more harmoniously together, the political elites and the people on the border, life will be much better for everyone inside the two countries. Now, of course, there are huge issues of governance and problems within both states uh, that need to be resolved as well. But I do feel that if the dominant narrative is one of hostility towards each other, both Sudan and South Sudan can't prosper. Well, thanks very much indeed for that. I, th- I think it's a, an absolutely terrific book because the uh, the subject at its core is so engrossing and you've been able to deal with it in such a, an intelligent and yet very human way uh, with the story, such as the, the, the one that you've just uh, given us of the couple who are split by the border and it really makes the type of reading that uh, I think can open up many uh, many of the big subjects in Africa to a much wider audience so many congratulations for that um, I just wanted to finish with a, with a very very simple question uh, it might be quite complicated to answer but what is your favourite place in Africa James because you've been Gosh, all yeah. over the place yeah, that's a very, very hard question. Um, for, well, for years I spent time in West Africa, and there's something about the West African coastal cities, Dakar and Abidjan, even Conakry, that, that I really fell, fell in love with. But I, I think given my recent experience and my fascinations with the Sudan, I'd have to say somewhere on the banks of the Nile, um, mm. there's a Sudanese saying that once you drink the water of the Nile, you'll always come back. Um, so I think I'd probably have to say sitting by the banks of the Nile, um, whether it's the White Nile or in South Sudan or the Blue Nile, White Nile that you find merging in Khartoum and then travelling up to to Egypt as the Nile itself um, as just an astonishing sight and central to the lives of so many people and and I guess to my own life as well. That's hedging a bit though. I mean, after all, you're talking about about what was one is now two very large countries. You're talking about one of the world's biggest rivers and and you're using that as your single place. Is there anywhere that you actually have in your mind when you think about uh, sitting by by the Nile? Yeah, I mean, one is the, the obvious place is a place called Mogren, which is uh, really the heart of Khartoum, and it's where the White Nile and the Blue Nile merge. Ah, yes. And you can 
sit by uh, the banks of these two great rivers and um, have a sort of spicy uh, coffee, very, very sugared, spicy coffee, um, sitting under a, under a mango tree and watch these mighty rivers merge and, and fly together. And that, with the sun, sun setting slowly, is, is a truly magical experience. Sounds fantastic. And of course, to do it properly, they ought to do it while reading your book. So uh, thank you very much indeed, James. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that was an interview with James Copnell, the author of A Poisonous Thorn in Our Hearts, an excellent book about the birth of South Sudan and the problems now faced by both the Sudans. That's it for now. I'm Nicholas Walton. This was New Books in African Studies. Goodbye for now.